Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this week's sponsor. You probably already know what I'm going to say. You already know all about them. The Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store for the last two years. Uh, The first P2P payments app to let you freaks buy Bitcoin. Uh, they're also helping you save money at local merchants with their boost program. When you get the boost card, you can go to Chick-fil-A, Whole Foods, your local coffee shop, Taco Bell. I believe Domino's is on there as well. The list goes on. It's only growing. Um, uh, on top of this, uh, you can easily send money to and from your friends. I've actually had a lot more friends ask me to cash at them recently over other alternatives, which has been been cool to see. Um and if you guys are buying Bitcoin and stacking stats on the Cash App as well, you can send that out to a personal wallet once you're ready to take your personal financial sovereignty into your own hands. Um, so go to your local uh, app store, either the Google or the Apple app store, and download the Cash App today. Hope you freaks enjoy this episode with Alex Gladstein. I know I certainly did. Uh, Alex is fighting a really good fight with the Human Rights Foundation and the Oslo Forum. And I think he's got a very, very strong message. So I recommend you listen to this uh, episode intently and and take the words of advice from Alex uh, to heart because this is uh, this is a battle for freedom at the end of the day. Enjoy. Tales from the Crypt. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a rainy Monday. Uh, deep in the hell week already, it feels like blockchain week started uh, Friday night. It's only Monday afternoon, and it's been a it's been a long weekend already for me. Uh, my guest today has had an incredible weekend. He gave one of the best speeches at the Magical Crypto Conference, in my opinion. Uh, I'd like to introduce you, freaks, to Chief Strategy Offer at the human uh, at the Human Rights Foundation uh, and the Oslo Forum, and also a guest lecturer at the Singularity University, Alex Gladstein. Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming, man. Uh, again, going back to your speech, I was telling you earlier, I was uh, fanboying a little bit. Uh, you pro- provided some of the best uh, introductory content to normies, I believe, on Saturday with your presentation at the Magical Crypto Conference. Uh, we're going to jump into that, obviously. But first, uh, as is par for the course here, Tales from the Crypt, how did you find your way to uh, the Human Rights Foundation, working Mm -hmm. on Bitcoin in particular. Yeah, so my background in human rights dates back to 2007 when I was still in university and I was in London working for the Liberal Democrats as a research assistant and studying at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And I put in an application for an internship with some new organization called the Human Rights Foundation, which had been created the year before, which was focusing at the time pretty heavily on on Venezuela and Cuba and and other kind of human rights issues in Latin America. And I got the internship and spent a few months that summer there putting together backpacks of outside information and movies and books, which would then be smuggled into Cuba. Because in Cuba, the government uh, does not allow you to have any books that they don't approve of ahead of time. So you can't have anything that's not kind of in there. A particular, uh, you know, philosophy. So we would we would send in stuff like Animal Farm, 1984. We would send in movies like <laughs> V for Vendetta. Be and I remember putting this together really vividly. This was the time of like 
uh, you know, burning CD, you know, CDs and DVDs, and we would put together what looked like somebody's like basically CD collection, Britney Spears and um, Bush and whatever. But in reality, uh, around the little sort of uh, transparent ring in the middle, we would write in very small font like what it actually was, and it would be you know whatever it was, like some Woody Allen movie or uh, Braveheart, etc the matrix, etc., And these would go in with my colleagues who were Latin American, so they could totally fine go to Cuba and they would meet up with folks in their homes, give them this stuff. And then it would be accompanied with like a Spanish language kind of like some sample questions. And our kind of contacts there would host these little three, four person meetups where they would watch the movie and then have like an open conversation about what that meant. And this was something that was, uh, looked upon very favorably by the civil society community and the underground library community in, in Cuba. Um, eventually, as the years went by, satellite technology became a little harder to like control. And now today you have this like paquete system, which was really well covered last summer in a, in a wired uh, big cover story. Uh, I where, remember like, this story. Yeah, folks like smuggle in a satellite uh, receiver basically, download everything on Spanish Netflix or whatever, and then they, they put it on a hard drive and they basically pass it around the community and people take off what they want and they pay for it. So the work we were doing is a little outdated at this point, but it was quite vital at the time. And it gave me a real sense of how you know, information is power. Uh, no, and especially in these countries where information is subdued and suppressed, it's interesting to see how the black market sort of routes around it. And this, this example in particular, the paquetes? The yeah, the paquetes. Yeah, yeah, this is like a, a, essentially a... You know, again, a hard drive that would contain, like, you know, contraband or for, forbidden information. And, you know, from Cuba, we ended up bringing some of these folks to our first uh, Oslo Freedom Forum uh, sort of event that we held in Norway in 2009, which was meant to be like a gathering point for all sorts of troublemakers and dissidents and whistleblowers. And we had some North Korean defectors there, too. And they were like, hey, we're doing something really similar. We're like smuggling information into North Korea using balloons. Um, can we trade notes? Do you guys want to you know, team up, help us out? So a few years later, we started to go to South Korea to meet them and assess their needs and bring philanthropists and technologists and media and, and journalists to understand like what they were working on and why they thought it was so important. This led to a wired cover story and a lot of amazing uh, media coverage. Um, I think the, the story was done by Andy Greenberg, one of my favorite journalists who actually covered a lot of Bitcoin's history. Um, I think he was like the court, one of the court reporters in like the, the Dread Pirate Roberts case, right? Mm -hmm. So Andy ended up going out there and interviewing all these folks and going on the ground you know, in, the, in that region. And he did this cover story that I think was called something like, um, you know, the plot to topple uh, Kim Jong-un with a thumb drive or something like that. And it was just this incredibly vividly detailed report on how North Korean refugees you know, gather at the border in China and at night, like, you know, send things over this river into North Korea where they, where these flash drives filled with movies and books and stuff would be sold and distributed and traded. And this is like a, a very popular thing that happens there. And it's, it's only grown in, in its phenomenon since. So that, that's something I worked on quite a bit at the Human Rights Foundation. Um, and then over the years, we, we started to do more like hands-on, digital security training for for journalists and activists and dissidents. We we team up with folks like the Electronic Frontier Foundation or the Tor Project. Um, they would come out to our events and meet journalists and activists from different countries and talk about how they could be more safe online, encrypted messaging, VPNs, stuff like that. 
And then over time, uh, inevitably, uh, I had been introduced to the concept of, um, you know, Bitcoin in, in around 2014 by Brock Pierce, who I was on a houseboat with in Ephemeral, a festival that takes place off the uh, in the Sacramento River Delta. A houseboat with Brock it, it Pierce. Was, it was fun. Yeah, it was great. So he he kind of got it on my radar. And that summer, uh, Mark Anderson wrote this piece for the New York Times, which I tweeted about then, and I thought was super really well done What's and still piece? to this day is one of the best articles in the mainstream media about bitcoin i mean i don't know what he's doing since then on it but it, it was really well written and it really captured my imagination but i didn't really put two and two together until 2016 when a guy named bill tai who was in bitcoin from the very beginning and was mining in his apartment in palo alto in like 2010 and has been been around for a long time he was the one who introduced Richard Branson to the concept of Bitcoin. And this is why Bitfury has that thing on Necker Island. That's mm-hmm. like the, you know, uh, cryptocurrency conference there. So Bill had made that connection and, and Bill was on the board of Bitfury. And Bill said, hey, and this was like September 2016. And he said, I'm on this, um, I'm involved with this organization. Maybe there's something we can do together to help people who, who are in like broken economies or something like that. So we ended up putting together just a small program at our, at our Freedom Forum, you know, that following spring. And I remember being uh, shocked because this was in May of 2017. So the Bitcoin price was going from like, uh, you know, $1,200 to to $1,500 to $2,000, kind of while we were sitting around that week in Norway. And it started to get on a lot of people's radar, you know, initially. Sort of like this week. Sort of like this week or sort of like December 2017 or whatever. But it, it, it was very exciting and, and it, was co- it was so convenient that we actually had Bill there. And, and I think, you know, there, there was some initial interest there. And then that, that kind of led me down the rabbit hole where in the last two years I've tried to work to understand how the Human Rights Foundation uh, can help people um, through our work uh, to, help, to help them sort of access uh, the world economy um, to help understand how Bitcoin can be a tool of liberation and to maybe work with uh, organizations and companies to do some like research in the field to help understand why and how people are adopting this new financial tool. Yeah, now you mentioned uh, Mark Anderson's piece in the New York Times being one of the best mainstream media pieces. I was like, yeah, I agree. And I was like, but after thinking about that for 15 seconds, you wrote probably another one in Time Magazine earlier this year. That w- That blew up in really drove home sort of the the uh, benefit of bitcoin from a human rights perspective yeah and it's it's um i had the benefit of hindsight of a lot more years of watching it succeed but mm-hmm. I, it's funny I, i'd been working on that piece for a few months with the encouragement of a few, of a few friends of mine and I, I write frequently in the in the mainstream media about general human rights issues and my friends at time were, were happy to run it they were excited so it happened at the very nadir like the very bottom of it was like bitcoin was like 3300 bucks or something at that point and i think one of the reasons it was it went so viral is that people were kind of bummed out and they were like ah oh, this is like this is what we're actually in it for you know mm-hmm. no it was in so let's jump into what you talked about in that piece in particular right it's uh basically it's it's yeah like bitcoin as a as a liberation tool from broken economies from dictatorship from financial surveillance from price fixing from hyperinflation uh from restrictions on your bank account on withdrawal limits all these things which 
you kind of may notice as like individual phenomenon, they're all part of this like financial repression like idea, right? That governments use to control people. And I say this in a non-conspiratorial way. Like I'll just put this out there. I'm like a, someone who believes in good governance. I'm like a fairly proud American. I, I think our government does some really great things in the world. I think we have some problems. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm not anywhere close to like an anarchist or even really a libertarian. I'm more of like a progressive person. Um, but I, I just witness so many crimes happening and so many injustices happening on the financial side that human the human rights community, the progressive community, just for some reason kind of just doesn't really think about or doesn't look at. You know, we've of course looked at like corruption. Um, but, you know, who owns money and who creates money and who gets to control money is something that I never even thought about even after working in this field for like many, many years until, until I sort of saw it through the prism of Bitcoin, right? Isn't it crazy? Because like money is, uh, it's the root of all evil. Money runs the world. It's, it's sort of the center of everything in culture and uh, music, uh, sort of pop culture, stuff like that. It drives the world. It's always talked about, but until Bitcoin, people really haven't, questioned sort of the essence of money and what what it is right and it's interesting because when i was writing the piece for time i was thinking about how both in the 90s and 15 20 years ago and again like 10 years ago sort of this sort of online digital freedom cypherpunk folks had been trying to explain why privacy digitally was important right trying to explain why pgp was important um, you know, folks like Phil Zimmerman, John Callis, some of these like legends, right? They, they worked so hard. John Perry Barlow, all these folks with EFF, like trying to fight to explain why we needed to have privacy on the internet. And we had already gone through numerous narrations of, of why encrypting our communications was a good thing, right? Not that, you know, unlike the establishment when they were first confronted with the idea of secret communications, they totally miss the point. It's not that bad people can all of a sudden communicate or the dictator can suddenly communicate with his accomplices. No, the whole point is that the million people that live under the dictator can all of a sudden now communicate without the dictator knowing, right? That's the real point of encryption. So we had already gone through this narrative of like, hey, everybody, here's why like communications privacy is really important on the internet. And the EFF and so many other organizations have already gone through the hoops on that and shown us how to argue that, right? And it just seemed so interesting that we were now going through the exact same thing again, just with money. In the same way that it's important for us to have digital communications privacy, it's important, it's even more important for us to have digital financial privacy. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and um, well, maybe it was a few months ago, and there was a British journalist who studies sort of money and, and payments, and he was saying something that I thought was, that was really pithy, and he said that sort of our spend or our spending habits say more about us than our words, right? And I think that's true, right? So if you care about your privacy and you were somebody who fought for encryption or you thought it was cool that people could now use Signal or Wicker, you should be really interested in Bitcoin because if you're not, you know, we're going down this road where money as a technology is evolving from metal money to paper money to, uh, you know, credit cards that represent the paper money to our phones, which then operate that system, to now social media companies, which are going to be the future of centralized digital money. And that's going to be a nightmare for our privacy. And, and you need to think about how this really amazing community of global uh, brilliant people are building a decentralized digital money that has privacy potential, major privacy potential. And I know we're not there yet, but seriously, like the door's been cracked open for this possible world where like in 
20 years, your family and your kids and, and future generations might still have financial privacy. And if we fail, I really think we're screwed because I mean, these people are so thirsty for your data. And so if we do fail, uh, there's already examples that exist in the world that, uh, have sort of, uh, come to be because of a failure of fighting for freedom and China being the main example. And mm-hmm. in your talk on Saturday, you touched on Weibo and how that platform in particular is the, the data, uh, data net. For WeChat in particular. WeChat. WeChat. Yeah. I mean, look, when I, in the time piece, I tried to break down briefly the, some examples for people to understand how this could matter for folks. So one, of course, is surveillance, right? So we look at China. We look at how most people in urban China, hundreds of millions of people, potentially more than a billion people every day, if you look at some of the data coming out um, from Tencent, you know, using this app every day. And just to explain to the average sort of maybe American who's listening, this thing is like as if your Amazon and Netflix and Google and Chase um, and Foursquare and, and email and Postmates. Instagram and all of it is in one app, right? So it's kind of like you're using Facebook or whatever, but Facebook's got Venmo in it and you never leave the app, right? So it's got this incredible ability that, that companies don't have here in the U.S. yet, thankfully, to create a perfect sort of digital footprint of your life. Sounds like a panopticon. Well, I mean, in some cases, that's the goal, right? I mean, the Chinese government would like to have uh, pretty full knowledge about what its citizens are doing in a granular way so that it can use big data analysis and machine learning and AI essentially to sift and sort through all that data to um, disincentivize and punish, if need be, any potential dissenters uh, and reward loyalists, right? That's the whole idea, is to create this climate of self-censorship and to create this climate where the most loyal people to the Communist Party are really rewarded in such a way where you would never think of even saying something against the government. And there was that amazing uh, quote from 1984 that I, that I used in the presentation about at, at the Magical Crypto Con about how, you know, the only thing you owned was the few square centimeters in your head, mm-hmm. right? And that's really, you know, the truth in, in some areas of China today, right? Especially in other, and it's not just in China. This has been, this has been done before without technology. Um, so, for example, in Mao's China or in North Korea today or in communist Cuba, you know, in, in, in very repressive environments, uh, even pre-sort of modern technology, governments were able to use informants and spies uh, to monitor the population. You know, we know about the Stasi Germany, right? The East German dictatorship. There, one out of every 50 people apparently was a spy. Mm-hmm. So what this has allowed governments to do is to like basically uh, make that process so much more efficient. So rather than having like one out of every 50 people walking around kind of trying to listen and rather, uh, rather than like sort of relying on people who could be like patriotic in a real sense and decide to not spy, now they don't have to do that because they can rely on you. And something that Yuval Noah Harari, the, the author, says, which I think is really spot on, is that these algorithms, these uh, things like WeChat or even Facebook or Amazon, you know, collectively they know more about you than you do. Like when you're watching Netflix, you don't need to, he, he says this, is funny, like you don't need to sit there and argue with your wife or whatever about what you want to watch. It knows what you want to watch. It's showing it there. <laughs> you, know, you could argue for an hour, but it's showing you right there. Like, you know, Foursquare or whatever, the, 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 you know, you don't need to know what you want to eat. It'll tell you what you want to eat. So think about that in the hands of like a repressive government, right? Um, so kind of this is, this is where we are in China. And that was one example I wanted to, to bring because if we could start to like, 
have a global neutral financial network where we could transact, uh, you know, in a way that would be more difficult to achieve that um, marriage of financial and personal information surveillance that's like really good for humans. Another example, of course, is hyperinflation. So whether it's the Zimbabweans or the Venezuelans uh, or the folks in Somaliland, a small country in the Horn of Africa or in Iran, um, this allows people to have access to a currency that the government can't just print more of arbitrarily. I was, uh, even though I've been following this uh, sort of process for, for years now in Venezuela, I was still shocked to see the price of a cup of coffee and priced in Bolivar bars from 2016, 2017, and 2018. Like I thought it was bad in 2016 already. Like, it was. I mean, it started a few years ago. But in mm-hmm. this again, this isn't a new phenomenon. Like uh, I think the world record for hyperinflation is Hungary in the 1960s or something like that. Um, I mean, this has been happening in the 20th century, uh, you know, dating back to pre-war Germany, right? So, so we have many examples of this. And again, this is this is a particular lifeline for someone under that situation. Okay, then you might have sanctions, and here's where it might get interesting for Americans because. Look, again, I'm like fairly proud to be an American, et cetera, but like we do some dumb stuff abroad. You know, why should the average young Iranian entrepreneur who definitely didn't vote for her government, why should she not have access to be able to buy Apple equipment or to not be able to transact with friends abroad? I think that's bullshit, you know? Oh, I do know. Like I've had uh, Iranian expats come study in America and I've, I've taken classes with them and I've had... Iranian friends at points of my life and they're some of the nicest people I've ever met and it's it's just, I think that's who I think of when I think of the sanctions is the people that I've met personally uh, Sina kid right. my age like and, and there's compelling arguments for us to focus on smart sanctions mm-hmm. meaning to focus on individual criminals as opposed to broad populations and Bill Browder has done some amazing work with that with the Magnitsky Act so makes I'd a lot more to, sense right I'd encourage you to look into that but generally speaking Bitcoin gives folks an escape valve from like arbitrary sanctions on their population and another example that I think is really really relevant from, from my work when I'm looking at helping people who are civil society organizers or NGO leaders in like difficult regimes let's say in Russia um, you know, what does Putin do when you are a human rights watchdog or an independent journalism organization? He wants to, like, restrict your movement, restrict your ability. I mean, he shuts down your bank account. I mean, he's got control over that. He can't do that anymore. I can now send Bitcoin into Russia. There's a lot of local liquidity, you know what I mean? And those folks can turn that Bitcoin into local money. And, and that, that is something that is, that is starting to happen in so many countries around the world. So this idea that like governments can restrict the flow of finances to civil society organizations, uh, especially if, we have, if we're teaching good operational security to folks and they understand how to most efficiently turn Bitcoin into local fiat, I mean, that's a lifeline for sure. Right? Yeah. No, and the Lightning Network Torch proved it. Like We went from Wales to... Iran to Israel almost went to um, almost went to Gaza after that at 30,000 feet in the air right right um, so that one I think is key and then the last example I mean there are more but the one that I thought was always strikes me as really important is this idea of identity and, and I know we, we can go down like a side path here but basically in a country like Burma um, you know the government has an incentive to sort of like delete people off the record. So it's this highly nationalistic regime which tries to scapegoat minorities like Muslims, for example, right? So we have a situation where the Burmese military dictatorship basically deletes or, you know, purposely loses 
or destroys the records of citizenship of Muslims. Like I have a friend of mine, this happened to her, right? And she was a um, a political prisoner from the age of 18 until 25. She spent seven years in prison in Burma, and then she escaped. And she was able to visit one of these camps that that, that basically the Burmese government has forced into existence by, uh, you know, pushing, chasing the, the Muslim minority uh, Rohingya population out of the northwest corner of Burma into Bangladesh over a river. And there's all these amazing photos on the internet of, of how brutal this is, right? All these people stuck in these camps. What is their justification for this? Uh, it's just hyper-nationalistic, jingoistic, uh, you know, persecution, you know, getting everybody excited about nationalism. Mm-hmm. There's like this Buddhist nationalism there, and they're preying on religious minorities. Uh, every dictator needs an enemy. Every dictator needs a boogeyman. So the boogeyman of, of this particular regime are the religious minorities, not just the Rohingya Muslim groups, but the Karen people and all kinds of people all across Burma. So the government's like super intense about destroying these people. So, so these folks have been like, you know, taken off the identity system and they're now sitting in Bangladesh in a camp and they don't have a passport or an ID, right? I've asked her, like, you know, did most folks there when she visited, did they have, you know, paper IDs and stuff? But no. Was there internet access uh, in the camp? Intermittently, yes. Are there markets in the camp? Meaning, do people come in and buy and sell things? Of course, Bangladeshis come in and buy and sell things every day. In any refugee camp, this happens, right? People come in, buy, sell things, leave. There's like a, a market that develops. Of course, in places like Jordan and Lebanon, where there are these massive Syrian camps, or in Kenya, where there's massive camps of Somalis, there's like a lot of this market activity going. So you could easily start to think about, with the proper education, we could have a situation where you could have a Rohingya family that doesn't have a passport ID, has no way of making a bank account, but if we can get them a cheap burner smartphone with access to the internet, you and I can send them non-KYC Bitcoin on like a bread wallet, and they can then take that to somebody who's particularly enterprising, uh, let's say in the market, who realizes, damn, I can make like a nice cut if I accept Bitcoin for goods and services, and all of a sudden you've got like a little market going. And this would allow us to completely sidestep the entire messy, corrupt, slow foreign aid process. We could just go peer-to-peer with people and they don't need some passport. They don't need permission from a government. That, to me, is like one of the most compelling parts of Bitcoin. And it's very compelling, right? Because there's, I mean, foundations typically get a lot of slack for, for not being the best allocators of the funds that they receive, correct? So it's... Yeah, and look, like, I think most people generally in the foreign aid business are, 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 you know, have noble intentions. But when you have a system whereby there are so many middlemen... And, you know, at a, at a base level, it's like if you're a foundation, the Gates Foundation, U.S. State Department, whatever, you're trying to help somebody abroad, you've got your bank, you know, so it's already it's you, then your bank, then SWIFT or some sort of global coordination network, then the bank of the person you're trying to help, and then the person. I mean, you've got like four or five different degrees of separation here, probably more, right? Whereas, like, we're talking no degrees of separation. We're talking a direct peer-to-peer uh, Person you know, address gift. will send you funds, right? It's that, that yeah, simple. exactly. And we can coordinate it, you know, peer to peer on messaging. So, um, and and this is not something that that, that currently uh, governments are are looking to stop, which is kind of an interesting idea to play with on its own. But you know, a friend of mine was saying that um, you know when she visits China today, which of course would be one of the governments you'd point to as like the most draconian when it comes to digital communications, that she can receive, you know like non-KYC Bitcoin onto her phone and then within minutes, you know, be 
shopping it and trading it on these WeChat groups and then get Renminbi for it. Like the liquidity is pretty easy to come by there. And you're starting to see that it's not just in, let's say, advanced uh, technology societies where that's possible, but in, in many different places. I mean, I've been doing uh, a podcast series, like an interview series with Adam Levine over the last few weeks for, for his show. And we've been interviewing people from all these different countries and learning a lot. I mean, it's so cool. You should definitely check out this 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 upcoming series that's coming out next so week. Speaking to people from Nigeria. Uh, yes, we interviewed folks from Nigeria, Iran, uh, the Philippines, India, Hong Kong slash China, um, and Venezuela. And and we were talking to them about like how, how first of all why did they get involved? You know, some of them are researchers, some of them are businessmen and women, some of them are entrepreneurs some of them are educators like you know why did they get involved um how how do folks access bitcoin and why and it was so interesting i learned so much i mean some a couple teasers would be like because i want you to listen to to the to the series but just a couple teasers would be that i mean it's amazing the bitcoin dominance in these countries and like i'm not like i love bitcoin but if something came along that was better i'd be like on it you know i'm, I'm here for the the freedom aspect of it but to, to understand the network effect that it already has and that this is like 90, 95% Bitcoin in these countries. So, I mean, that's something to think about if you're like, how can I help? Well, I mean, you probably, probably should start by seeing how we can make the existing infrastructure better, right? And then the other thing that was really interesting was understanding this idea of like liquidity time. So, for example, again, if I send like non-KYC Bitcoin to you, um, you know, whatever, two, three confirmations, half an hour. It's, 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 it's with that other person, right? How, how long does it take from the moment that it hits their wallet uh, and, and is confirmed to when they can be holding local currency in their hand or in their bank account, right? And, and this is like 15 minutes for some of these countries, even less for some. Um, and, you know, it sounded like no more than even like a day, even in particularly difficult countries, uh, like India, where they're really cracking down on cryptocurrency. It sounded like you could do this, generally speaking, within a business day. And, I mean, that's just extraordinary. I mean, especially when you think about how long some of these wires and Western unions and international international kind of money transfers take to process. And we're doing it in a way where no one has the opportunity to say, no, we don't really like you, so we're just not going to let that one go through, you know? So we're not only doing it faster and more in a streamlined fashion, but we're also doing it without the opportunity uh, for crony censorship. Yeah, and it's like something you touched on earlier is like China and Russia, they have the ability to stop these transactions pretty pretty easily if they want to via tracking. They can censor at will. Do you think Bitcoin is like, obviously it's playing catch up against these systems. Are you... Uh, are you optimistic about where it is on its path compared to what we're fighting, right? Because, like, obviously, like we just said, like, China is the, on one polar end, like, this is the worst case scenario that we could end up in, um, and we're actively fighting against that future uh, outside of China. I think there's some, there's a couple different viewpoints here, right? I mean, I think you can take the point of view that um, with a defensive technology like Bitcoin, uh, it's always going to be easier for individual developers to kind of like stay a little bit of ahead of, of, of surveillance. So that's like one potential outcome, right? And people like Adam Fiskor, who created Wasabi Wallet, like they tend to have this philosophy like, oh, like he's like within a few years, this is going to be very, very difficult to trace, right? Um, on the other hand, you have others who are like, don't underestimate, you know, Mossad or, or you know, 
the NSA or the Chinese government, like don't underestimate them, right? So we have this kind of like some people who are a little more optimistic, some people who are a lot more pessimistic about, let's say, government's ability to restrict us from sending each other Bitcoin. And I think we need to consider all views. All of them are viable. All of them are possible. I think there is a world where Bitcoin can be used to grow in certain ways, but becomes practically unusable because it's either the risk of owning it or using it is so high. And I think we need to do whatever we can to kind of make that world not a reality, right? Yeah, no, you yelled at me over the weekend via Telegram that we need, we can't fuck this up <laughs> as Bitcoiners. Yeah, it's been really amazing to be at the <laughs> at the magical crypto conference. Usually I speak at events where, you know, that aren't crypto events where people are, you know, don't know very little, they know very little about Bitcoin or any sort of cryptocurrency, right? And I'm trying to explain to them, you know, what it is, what are some of its attributes are, why it exists, how it functions, etc. cetera. Um, so to get to speak to an audience of some of the most uh, sort of world-class builders of Bitcoin was, was really fun. And also other projects too. Like I think other projects are awesome, like all about Monero and Zcash. I think private money is really important, not necessarily because I think people are going to use it all over the world, but but especially because like we need all kinds of cutting edge people working on private money and hey, at least at the end of the day, they'll keep the Bitcoin people more honest and, and, and you know, keep them more on schedule, right? So to, to come together with this community was super fun. I think everybody's kind of like into civil liberties and at their heart, if, if they're actually there for, for uh, an ideological reason, if they're into Bitcoin or, or Monero or Zcash, obviously they care about uh, privacy and they don't, they don't like the surveillance state, right? So it was fun to hang out there and uh, you know, do, do a talk that hopefully gave uh, folks some insight into what would happen if they screw up and just looking more into kind of what's happening in China. Uh, again, the world's largest country. This isn't some Black Mirror episode. This is, this is something that's happening and it's not just happening in China. Hey, this stuff's being exported all over the world. So that's what I wanted to get into. Um, so two things. One, first, like you said, it's uh, becoming to the point in China where like if you interact with quote unquote undesirables, you're going to hurt your social credit score. And so you're just basically with via the social credit score creating pariahs uh, in society, which is scary, which is a scary thought. Yeah. And just a note on that. I mean, we should be under no illusions that that's something that's happening kind of en masse across the country in a unified, cohesive way. But it is something that's being experimented with in certain cities and by certain companies. And it's absolutely something the Chinese Communist Party would love to see across the country. So while, while we need to take everything, I think, coming out of China, um, especially in the English language, with a grain of salt, because, you know, there's just, you know, a lot of um, uh, sort of conflicting reports about exactly what's happening. I think what we do need to know is, is what their intentions and goals are, which they've been quite clear about, you know, and that, that's that they want to have things like that happen. They want to have people who are, who are low on on social credit, let's say, uh, not be able to access key financial services because that allows them to run a regime which is protected by self-censorship as opposed to active censorship. It's way easier if all of your citizens are afraid to rule. If they're not afraid, it's very difficult to rule arbitrarily, right? So I think that's kind of the goal there, and that's something we hopefully don't have to don't ever have to see in, in, in other countries. No, I think... Second point, going back to your point about China starting to export this, uh, this is one thing that you mentioned and talked about briefly in your presentation, but Belt and Road, a uh, $1 trillion investment project uh, to basically export this technology to countries around the world, Latin America, Africa in particular. 
Um, so $100 trillion project, $400 billion of that has been deployed tr- already. Tr- $1 trillion project. Yes, $1 trillion. Yeah. And to give you like, some historical context, so the Marshall Plan, which rebuilt Europe after World War I mm-hmm. in like, today's dollars, I guess, was some, would be something like $120 billion, right? So the Chinese government has already given out $400 billion in investments and loans to like, more than 100 countries all across South Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and now Europe, right? And I think that's the kind of the maybe the most chilling part for people who are from America or Europe because we think, oh, it can't happen here. Even when I show them stuff about, look, this like Ecuadorian government, there's this amazing New York Times investigation into this about how the Ecuadorian government in South America is you know, using Chinese technology to surveil the population. And you've got... Did only- Korea let that happen? The, it, it, so, yeah, so basically it started under Korea. And look, I know that the, the current president, the current leader of Ecuador is actually much better on human rights than, than Korea, much less authoritarian. But still, I mean, as we know, even in open societies, uh, like think about the Brits or the Australians, they're like super intense about creating a digital police state, um, even in democracies. So it's something that everybody needs to be worried about. Um, but when, when you look at some of these other countries too, like Zambia, like, so I have a friend who just went there. When you get off the plane at the airport, at the capital, everything's in Chinese, all the signs. So there's like, there's like quite a lot of this neo-colonialistic kind of like Chinese infrastructure and loans uh, sort of system being set up all across the world. I mean, Burma is essentially a colony of China at this point um, where they harvest all the, you know, teak and rubies and all kinds of resources uh, and, and they abuse the local population. Um, but even, but, but to get into Europe, I mean, the fact that like Italy and Greece, uh, Switzerland, I mean, Italy was the first G7 country to be a part of this thing, the Belt and Road. Um, Switzerland, Monaco uh, is allowing Huawei, you know, to build their 5G network, right? So uh, all these countries in Europe are about to like basically auction off the rights for the building and the construction of the 5G networks, right? All in the next 18 months. This isn't something happening in five years, happening right now. And, you know, you talk to some telecommunications officials in these countries and they're finding it very hard to steer their decision makers away from the Chinese companies. They just have better tech. They're ready to deploy it now. Why not, right? And it's difficult to argue why not. What's, right. Well, what is the pitch? Is the pitch like you're going to be able to surveil your old population? Could argument why no, not well, be No, like- it's that like there's tremendous business pressure to, to launch and set up 5G for commercial interests in all countries. I mean, it's a, I know there's some health concerns, but generally speaking, which obviously should be explored more, but generally speaking, the idea is we're going to have gigabit speeds on our phones on 5G networks, right? And it's going to totally change the way that like public infrastructure, health, you know, networks, uh, payment networks, all this stuff kind of works, right? Now, I can tell you, if you care about your privacy and civil liberties, you don't want the Chinese Communist Party's, like, apparatchiks building your 5G networks because they're going to build it in a way that's very, uh, uh, you know, let's say, malicious for your personal privacy. Hey, you showed one example of a, a Chinese policewoman wearing Terminator-like glasses where she could literally just, like, look through them, they're electronic, and, and read people's social credit score as she's walking by. Yeah, and, 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 and some of that, again, is, like, an experiment at this point. I think the New York Times did a story that was that was pretty good where they were saying, that like, at this point, some of this stuff's more Kafkaesque than Orwellian. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly that photograph is of a, a policewoman who, a year and a half ago or so, was testing such a device. Now, I'm not sure if it was uh, certainly at the time, like, 
working at scale. I mean, maybe today it is, but at the time, the idea was that they're testing these technologies so that when they're police officers, and they're, I think at this point, they're up to 700 million surveillance cameras in China. So the goal was to be at a billion by next year, by 2020. So there'll be almost as many surveillance cameras as people, people. in that country. And the goal is that these cameras are like integrated in some way across a standard where like when your face comes up or, or your movement, your gait like comes up that, that you get sort of identified and then, you know, they can easily, you know, figure out whether or not you are a potential troublemaker or not. I mean, that's clearly the goal. I mean, we don't know where we are in the implementation of that, but in some places a lot closer to reality than others. And, and this is this is this street level facial recognition tech is what these other countries are buying. like. Latin America, Africa, et cetera, like what, whether it's, again, Zambia or, or Ecuador or Panama. I mean, that's what these countries are buying. And these European countries seem pretty excited about surveillance. I mean, I told in, in my magical CryptoCon talk about this story of the Danish banker that I met last week, and she... She couldn't you know, explain why she wants to know everything. <laughs> yeah, I had this conversation after giving a talk to a bunch of, like, telecom and, and banking folks from Scandinavia. And in the Q&A after, she was like, well, I don't think we have enough information about our clients. And I was kind of like, well, like, what else do you want to know? Like, is there a limit? Is there a line that you would not want to cross with regard to collection of personal data about your clients? And she couldn't answer me. I mean, again, these people are so thirsty for your information and your data. And, and even if they're good people individually, it's like the banality of evil thing. They just want it all. Um, because they think it's going to result in a safer society. And that's this like huge misconception. But they really want it all, and they will take it from you if you don't fight for it. Well, I think Bitcoin is a um, an incarnation of a, the fight for that freedom. But going back to the exportation of this Chinese technology, you were alluding that there are Western companies helping them do this too. Um, yeah, no, it's so pretty how, stunning. How's this um, happening? One of the things we do at the Human Rights Foundation is go to South by Southwest every year, and we, we try to put together some programming to intrigue the sort of creative tech classes that go. And if you haven't been, it's awesome. You should totally join us next year. We're probably going to do some programming along these lines of like how Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are maybe like providing some lifelines to folks around the world. But anyway, uh, this year we decided to focus on this issue of the prison camps in Western China. And we brought in a, someone who had escaped uh, from these camps. His name is Tahir Amin. He's a Uyghur Muslim uh, minority guy. And a couple of years ago, he had gotten out. Now he lives in, in the United States as a, as a refugee. And um, we put him on, on, on stage, and I got to interview him along with like two journalists who'd been kicked out of China for reporting on this issue. And it was, it was a pretty stunning... Uh, you know, revelation, I think, for the people in the audience who had no idea this was happening. I mean, there's probably one, 1.5 million Muslims in these prison camps, and nobody seems to know. And what was so crazy is that Dahir was profiled by the Times a couple months ago, and, you know, before he left, his, his DNA had been sequenced, like taken from him, right, cheek swab or something like that. And, and the Chinese Communist Party is building this huge DNA database of all these Uyghurs. And... Uh, you know, this was this was broken. This story was broken in the New York Times, and I got to ask him about this on the panel. And, and look, you know, we can call it conspiracy theory. You can call it whatever you want. In my opinion, these sort of theories need to be uh, it needs to be proven by the Chinese Communist Party that they're not doing these things. But a couple examples of w what he gave as to why they would be doing this. I was like, well, why are they collecting all your DNA? So he kind of gave two reasons. 
Number one is organ harvesting. So you know that the Chinese government does a lot of organ harvesting of prisoners, things like that. This has I, been in the news for a long time. I did not know that. Yeah, so this it's, is you news just, to me. You can just look up organ harvesting China. Like it's 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 common knowledge that the Chinese government harvests organs from prisoners and things like what that and fuck? sells them around the world. Well, in the United States, what's a liver cost? What eight hundred grand? Like this is a very lucrative industry, right? And and there's not a whole lot of regulation around the space. Um, so. This is something you can look up. I mean, there's like British government, American government, all kinds of government reports on this. Now, what was, what was horrifying to me to learn was essentially that what Tahir told me, and again, you know, you can look this up and figure it out if it's true or not for yourself. I'm not sure. I think the burden of proof should be on the Chinese government, not on us. Um, but essentially what he says is that he's got sort of like testimony and um, like kind of eyewitness evidence that what the Chinese government is doing is providing halal organs. Okay, so they're like rich Saudi and Emirati princes and royalty and rich folks who when they get sick, they want a Muslim liver or kidney or whatever. And they're willing to pay double. So they're willing to pay like two million bucks for like a Muslim organ, right? And they buy them from the Chinese government who harvests them from the, the prisoners in Xinjiang. I did not know now, that. It's, it's the, I, you'll never be able to forget it. It's like this jarring idea. And, you know, is it is it happening? I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm trying to figure it out, but it's certainly something I could use some more help on. So if folks want to dig into that, that would be great. Um, but it was stunning for him to say that. And, of course, like the more obvious thing is that if you're a Chinese Communist Party official and it's you can basically like put your freaking um, thumbprint on a screen and then order an organ, essentially, from the prison camps, like that would be pretty convenient, right? So he's got, that's his like first reason for why they're doing this. The second one was even more sinister, and he's basically saying they're creating a bioweapon that would kill all the Uyghurs but not other people. And I was just like, okay, I mean, that sounds pretty dystopic, but is it really a worse? A bioweapon that could, what? That, that would basically target, the de- it would target folks with like certain characteristics, mm-hmm. right? And not others. Well, see, what I, when I... That's his theory. I mean, again, we're getting into like stuff that I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say this is happening or not. It's what he told me. But again, I think that the burden of proof needs to be on the Chinese government to basically come out and say they're not doing this. Because I don't know, dude, they've got millions of Muslims in prison camps and what they're doing is cultural genocide. What they do is they take the men and they put them in the camps. They take the wives, they marry the wives off to Han Chinese men and then they take the kids and they change the identity of the kids to Han Chinese. So they're literally doing what they did in Tibet. They're doing cultural genocide. You never hear anybody talk about Tibet anymore. I mean, Tibet's like a done deal. The Chinese government was victorious in Tibet. So what they're trying to do is do the same thing in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs, and they're using this highly advanced technology to do it, right? And a lot of that, at the end of the day, it rests on financial surveillance, right? So again, we need to come up with uh, ways to preserve uh, our financial sovereignty and our financial privacy, um, or else I'm afraid, folks, that the slippery slope ends in prison camps. I'm just afraid that that's where it goes. It's... It's shocking to me, too, because even 60, 70 years after the fact, 80 years after the fact now, or yeah, 60, 70 years after the fact now, after the Holocaust and like the, the trauma that's brought up with that, we have a genocide going on in Yemen. We have these internment camps in China, and it seems that the world is, is sort of a little bit quiet about the modern-day genocide. Congo, Syria. Yeah. Yemen. Xinjiang. What's going on in North Yemen? North Korea is disgusting to me. Like as an American, is like the fact that the America. Yeah, we should be helping the Yemeni people. We're financing their. It's a disaster. Their, it's a famine, officially, right? It's a disaster. It's hard to know, but I have some friends who just went there, and um, we should be trying to help save these people as opposed to support 
the Saudi dictatorship and MBS, who are horribly corrupt and evil. Um, but you know, we do what we do. So look, I'm not, I'm not in the politics game here. I'm not trying to blame or point fingers, but I, I would remind folks gently that no matter what side of political side you are in the United States, that both Democrats and Republicans have been super guilty on this one. I mean, like Hillary Clinton was taking tons of money from the Saudis, and you go back to, to George H.W. and W., both loved the Saudis. Um, you know, Obama wasn't, wasn't much different, and, and now you have Trump. So, like, no matter where you are politically, I mean, dude, they're all, they're all going to take money from the Saudis. So the important thing is that we as, like, non-political folks, let's say, stand up and speak out. And it was kind of alarming when Jamal Khashoggi, you know, the Saudi journalist and, and writer, was murdered. I had met Khashoggi. He was a guest at the Oslo Freedom Forum last year. And it was stunning for us to hear about what happened. But even more stunning was that a couple weeks later, there was, like, a big business conference in Riyadh, right? And this was an opportunity for, like, business is like American businesses who don't have any, you know, they're not voted on by the American, they're not trying to like deal with foreign policy. They're just trying to sell their products. They had an opportunity to take a stand and basically say, no, you know, we're not going to support the Saudis. And they didn't do it. They claimed they did, but like a bunch of them went anyway, you know? And, and I think what, what, what this industry, the, the, let's say the, we'll call it the crypto industry, regardless of what project you're working on, like, I mean, I hope you're working on, on Bitcoin or something related to Bitcoin, but regardless of what you're working on, like, you need to be very careful about what conferences you attend, what you support, what you're building. Like, don't build a smart city, which is a euphemism for a surveillance city. Don't build a blockchain project or a cryptocurrency for a repressive government. Um, you know, don't build something that's going to be used to create a database for people. Uh, don't build a blockchain project that's going to be like storing all this data for like vulnerable people on it. That's not a good idea. Um, don't do any of these things, you know, build, build things that can help preserve our privacy and our data and money sovereignty. And this is really important. And it's an opportunity for you all um, to take an ethical stand where our political leaders are failing, right. And where our traditional business leaders are failing. Well, that most importantly. And then second, when these governments and, uh, corporations do are able to harvest our data they're terrible at storing it like you you pointed out equifax you pointed out that didn't was it india or china's dna program that had a breach uh where everybody's dna is on the market now like it, it just from a from an opsec from a security perspective like the the world that bitcoiners are trying to world to build excuse me just probably makes more sense and in, 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 uh, yeah, this, this in big, spreads out risk. This idea that we should be all uploading all our data and sharing it all over the world has dire consequences. Uh, a colleague of mine mentioned this today. Like, was it Strava? Um, the kind of like uh, fitness tracking app that decided to like put all the data onto this like big global heat map. And again, as an American, this was interesting because apparently what had happened is that uh, what was visible was like exactly where U.S. military bases were. Yes. You'd see yes, this, like in the this. middle of the desert, you'd see all this activity. So regardless of kind of where you are, like, like this is a bad idea. Like, let's not have this like massive, like sort of like neon sign that's displaying where we are and what we're doing at all times. Um, this tends to be a bad idea. And, and it, it, it matters. Look, it matters for, for money, I think, kind of primarily because that's kind of like the infrastructure for a lot of. Of, of the way we network and, and communicate as, as humans, but it also matters for other stuff. So look, I'm, I'm here to talk about Bitcoin, but you know, I'm also really interested in zero knowledge cryptography. I, I, I hope there's a day where 
you know, my data on my phone can be sovereign to me and I get to disclose who gets to see it or sell at my pleasure to whatever companies I want as opposed to them just taking it and just, you know, doing whatever they want with it. And whether it's my location data, financial data, health data, you know, and maybe these like lightning based apps um, can kind of like show us the way to, to maybe a near future where that can be possible. Um, I hope so. Uh, and, and again, there's like a lot of there's a tremendous amount of responsibility on folks developing this stuff and they're not getting a lot of they're getting no mainstream media support they're being attacked by the mainstream media um generally speaking within the crypto industry they tend to be black sheep like they're doing it for their principles generally speaking i mean there's certainly some bad characters even in the bitcoin space but like generally speaking these folks are like kind of ideologically committed and a lot of them are making less money than they could be you know working for google or whatever and they need our support, right? And and they need like they need our moral support, financial support, emotional support, whatever, because um, they gotta build this stuff. Because if we don't have like reasonably scalable, usable financial privacy, we are toast. Yeah, I uh, I would concur with that. And so things like what Willow Burn and Casa, not together separately, are thinking about like WebLN and and using uh, basically hardware node to act as a digital passport is something that's mm -hmm. really appeasing to me. It's something, like you said, you only disclose and release information when you want to. Uh, you basically go around using cryptography saying, hey, I want to interact with this site. All right, I'll let it see. Yeah, and it's there's several people who've talked about this idea. I think Jack Mahlers did on, on, on one of Peter McCormick's podcasts, but this idea that like maybe like your lightning ID essentially would be kind of like your avatar, right? Like, like it's how you would use to interact with video games or whatever, and you could build a reputation with it, but it doesn't have to be linked to your personal information. It could be an avatar, um, but, but that's such a compelling idea to me, right? And it's something that I think I'd love to see more iteration on. It's a brilliant idea. You can build multiple uh, yeah, you can reputations. Have a whole bunch. Exactly. You spin yeah. up a bunch of nodes. You have your gamer node. You have your finance node. You have your... Yeah. yeah, and I just, look, at the end of the day, you get a lot of pushback from people being like, oh, well, like, you know, if we have anonymity or pseudonymity or whatever, like, the world's going to end or, you know, all these bad things are going to happen. And again, we saw this argument happen before with the rise of the internet and, and, and the rise of private messaging. I mean, did the world end? Like, like, is it much worse off than before? No. In fact, like, it's, it's, it's I think, arguably, demonstrably better on, like, nearly every front. Um, I think open systems that allow people to do things, uh, you know, according to, to their own, uh, you know, rights and abilities are so much better than closed arbitrary ones where you need to ask for permission for everything and where your rights can be taken from you. I mean, I think a quite simple um, parallel on this would be like the idea of like the open democratic society versus uh, the totalitarian one or the dictatorship, right? Like if you were to ask a young person, like a child, you know, what's more safe? The society that has like all the guns and all the rules or the one that has like a lot less rules and a lot less guns and people kind of do their own thing. You know, the child would usually say something like, oh, I'd rather live in the one with a lot of rules and a lot of guns and a lot of police. But that's not the way it works. It's counterintuitive. Like basically terrorism and corruption breed in like very tightly controlled societies um, like Syria, for example, obviously. Whereas like much more open societies, even though they have flaws, but like let's say like Switzerland or... United Kingdom or Japan or whatever, Costa Rica, uh, they tend to have a lot less of those problems because they're open, right? Because there's like social trust and all sorts of really cool attributes that come out when we have freedom, right? So this sort of idea is, is, is 
holds with knowledge as well, right? We used to all live under like controlled knowledge environments where, um, you know, before the printing press, especially like only a handful of people could control knowledge, right? And then the evolution of the technology of information went from the printing press to the telegram to the radio to the television to now the internet and now it's like everybody can hold all the information in the world in their pocket it's tremendously important and you really see this come out in places like north korea like this is amazing and it holds again i think for money right and that's like the big question and that's what i believe but you know we, we aren't sure yet because we're at the brink it just happened just a couple years ago right but now we can have decentralization of money we can distribute money and hopefully people can all get involved with it as opposed to like some arbitrary elitist group being in charge and i think that this idea um that we can all kind of own our financial destiny or whatever uh won't trigger more criminals won't trigger more bad behavior in fact i think it'll lead to less corruption peer-to-peer interactions and a more market-based sort of digital economy, I think, will lead to better decision-making for humans. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's my that's my, my, my working thesis at the moment. No, I would agree, and this is actually a great segue into uh, the end part of your speech from Saturday where you uh, analogize Bitcoin uh, as a modern-day peaceful Manhattan project, right? So you're talking about you think this is going to change sort of the dynamic of how people work together, like nuclear theory or like nuclear war theory changed game theory on, on the geopolitical level mm-hmm. forever like mm-hmm. now that everybody has nukes like it's most likely that nobody's going to launch one because the world would end like right. know, that game theory if we get bitcoin to a point where it's ubiquitous and out that creates a new game theory too where it's like hey but it's a peaceful one it's a more peaceful game so theoretical we'll, situation we'll take that in two ways one is that um it is cool. It's sort of like this peaceful Manhattan project where like all the smartest people are without coercion coming together from across languages from around the world to build this like sovereign, arguably, hopefully private money project. Like that's amazing. But the second part is it does have those geopolitical effects and this is what we're observing, right? So in the same way that like, oh, now there's like deterrence and, you know, owning a nuke like arguably may prevent violence. And there's all these interesting ideas, right, in that geopolitical field. Now, like, governments are faced with, like, what do we do, like, what would happen if we banned Bitcoin? I mean, there would be economic consequences for that. It's not like when a government just bans the internet or shuts it off. I mean, there are economic consequences for shutting off the internet, obviously, but they're much more grave and immediate for shutting off an economic network, right, that connects their citizens to the world. So the longer that governments don't attack the harder it will be for them to do so in the future. As long, if these businesses across China and, and South Asia and Africa and the United States, I mean, if they become more and more and more legitimate and more and more tied into the way that people do things, they'll be a lot harder to root out. And if a government decides to go all draconian, uh, you know, to all go just like let's torch it all, you know, um, basically it'll drive out a lot of innovation to competing economies. And I just don't believe in this world where... 180 or 90 governments somehow one day agree like miraculously oh we're all going to ban bitcoin at the same time we're all going to make possession illegal like they're not going to do that there's going to be three or four random island nations that are going to say oh we're, we're actually going to keep it open we're going to be open for business over here and y'all can come here well, and we're going to we're going to we're going to take advantage of all that entrepreneurship and all that innovation so even, it's just not going to happen i don't dude. even think it's going to going to be like island nations like the u.s and china are in a trade war right now i can see one trying to dick over the other and just be like fuck you we're going right and this is why bitcoin at the end of the day is so much more than a, a technology i mean it, it is but it's it's way more than that it's, it's this incredible socio- socioeconomic phenomenon that like 
is going to change the way that that nation states deal with each other uh, is going to change the way that you know businesses deal with each other and is going to change the way that nations and and individuals interact when it comes to money um, and transacting value and storing value and that's kind of um, really why I think it's very exciting to live at this time I mean if, if you're a believer that 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 this is something like uh, whether it's, it's it's sort of the printing press or this steam engine or um, you know something that like transformative for society um, then we're kind of you know at this brink where things are gonna be different later you know and I think we have all the reasons to believe that that, that that's true and that that kind of where we're headed is, is very if not exciting at least uh, mystifying you know definitely mystifying and inspiring again this is something I've said a lot last month in particular but it is like Bitcoin has provided a common mission for for people around the world to sort of join forces and I wake up every day with a, with a sense of purpose like writing the yeah. event, doing this podcast. Look, and it can be very inspiring and you know look I try to do my best to stay relatively even handed it's difficult because I think I'm very excited about Bitcoin but I wanted to ask you um, what could go wrong like what if Bitcoin really succeeds and what if all of a sudden in the near future or in the mid near future we have the ability to uh, transact seamlessly in any sort of denomination to anyone on earth or anyone connected to the internet without having to reveal our identity. I mean, what, like, I just want to play with that for a second to appease all of our critics, let's say, or to, to, to perhaps give them the benefit of the doubt that they're actually right. Um, what is your, have you ever thought about that? Like, what, what do you think, what, what are the bad things that could happen? And I'm asking you this so that we can start to think about how we can prevent those things from happening, right? Yeah, so if we don't get sufficient fungibility, I think we could easily remake the systems we're trying to run away from. That's number one. Right. So if we don't have, if coins can be tainted and tracked too mm-hmm. easily. Yes. That's now, one. how does that relate to light? Like, what if all of the transactions are happening on second layer? That's right? uh, it's good for us. It's uh, good for us, but I mean, you know, we have to make sure that um, governments and companies can't monitor the Lightning Network with with ease. You know, we have to make that really hard for them. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the NL big conspiracy that Matt Matt Odell, my co-host on RHR, mm-hmm. is always talking about. He thinks there they there's a potential for Ellen Big, who has, I believe, fifty of the top one hundred biggest Lightning Network nodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, just sell his uh, services to the highest bidder. Well, that they they're trying to become as connected as possible to the network to be able to track it, right? Um, so, uh-huh. uh, on Lightning in particular, you have these channels open with most of the nodes. You can probably. So, what's the way to defeat that, folks? Is for all of us to start getting involved, right? Yeah. No, that and then use Tor, use Tor as well. So we've right. we've made our Lightning network node uh it's running through tour now but another thing with that is we need bitcoiners to run tour relay nodes as well like we're mm-hmm. we expect bitcoin to um to leverage tour we need to uh we need to contribute to tour to, yeah, and this to is, that this, network as well i think this is interesting because um no that is that is a fear you know the the, the fear especially i think from and you, you hear this from folks certainly folks in the monero community who are, are more concerned um but like that bitcoin will become a surveillance tool and I think it's, it's what's kind of interesting to me is that we have this idea of like voter apathy in the United States where like, eh, my vote doesn't count. Like nothing I can do can make a difference. Well, it couldn't be more different with Bitcoin. Like you need to go, you know, every everything you can do personally, 
to whether it's use Tor or add to the decentralization of the network makes a difference, right? Yeah, no, and then on top of that, so like adding to decentralization, uh, so I like to de-alienate between decentralization and robustness. So like robustness, I, I think of uh, the ways in which you can send Bitcoin, and I think that's an imperative uh, problem to tackle as well, and that's what I wrote about in the Bent this morning was TX10M Blockstream Satellite's recent uh, announcement that you're going to be able to send Bitcoin transactions via mesh network and propagate it via satellite so you never have to touch the internet, which I think is huge. A good plus, like if without that stuff, that type of stuff, uh, internet service providers would definitely be able to censor the network if they were ever coerced. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. I mean, and we, we need to work on infrastructure, but we also need to work on design and usability. And maybe that's a good seg into uh, the Open Money Initiative mm-hmm. and some of the work that the Human Rights Foundation is proud to sponsor. That uh, Jill Carlson and Alejandro Machado and Jamal Montasser are doing by doing design research uh, going into the field in this particular case uh, working with venezuelans who've escaped from venezuela who are living in colombia and trying to understand how they are sending and receiving transactions with family like how they're accessing money around the world and it's pretty amazing that they're doing this with an eye towards design and usability and i think that's key because at the end of the day if it's just a small group of people i mean think of like something like pgp like if it's kind of hard to use and kind of a pain it can only have a limited effect, right? So if it's easy, if it's just like a swipe, and if it's done with usability in mind, then that's how we can really get this thing going. So i um, definitely happy to point you guys to that direction. Yeah, check out the Open Money uh, Project. Shout out to Alejandro Machado, TFTC alum. Um, but I pulled yes. up my app. I'm not checking text or anything. I want to show you the Zap app, which I think is a uh-huh. huge step forward in UX, like running a Lightning yes. Network node in particular. Like I've set up the TFTC.io website a couple of weeks ago. We launched it, uh-huh. and we're trying to make it like a closed-loop Bitcoin system running on Lightning and Bitcoin, obviously. Um, but it's if before this app, in my mind, like I would have had to be at my computer at all times managing channels. Right. Um, and, and being to be in a central location to do that. The Zap app has made this experience leaps and bounds better. You scan a QR code, you're immediately connected to that node. And I had to run errands the weekend we were launching the site. So I was on the go and I was able to open channels, create liquidity on the go. It's very easy. And you're talking to somebody, even though I'm a Bitcoiner, been to Bitcoin for a while, I'm not the most technically apt uh, Bitcoiner and um, yeah, and look, hopefully the Open Money Initiative folks and, and other projects like it can help us understand like what people actually need in these broken financial systems so that we can provide them stuff that, that the average non-technical person can use and, and make a difference in their life. I mean, I think that that would be something that I would be happy to hang my hat on. Like already we've, we've uh, started to collaborate with local Bitcoins um, and started to talk to them about some of the challenges that people in Venezuela, for example, face in accessing it. It's not like super mobile friendly, for example. So like if we could do more of that, if we could, if we could work with them and we are, uh, through the open money initiative doing that, um, hopefully we can get easier access to their, uh, you know, peer to peer, um, you know, uh, peer-to-peer marketplace uh, through mobile. And, and that, that would be a really cool achievement. So I hope to like replicate that around the world with some of the work that I'd like to do uh, you know, at HRF moving forward that I hope you all can get involved with and check out at hrf.org or, or write to me uh, on Twitter at Gladstein, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-I-N. 
um, or, or by email if you want at, at alex at hrf.org. Yeah, and definitely, definitely reach out to Alex if you guys are interested in any Please of this. Please do. But like from a, I forgot what I was going to say. From a UX perspective, um, oh, so uh, I think replicating uh, tendencies that people are already used to, like topping up minutes on a burner phone or something like that, uh, some, especially in uh, countries where that's usually poorer countries where that's more common stuff like that, replicating those experiences, but for Bitcoin. So that's why companies like Azteco and get bitter in Mm -hmm. Europe, uh, appease me because it's a a sort of simple UX where it's, Hey, give me money, provide an address and you get Bitcoin. No, we need it. Like at the end of the day, folks are all too eager to trade their freedom for convenience. We just have to know this. This is like a, a sad human trait, right? So we need to make sure that, the stuff that preserves financial sovereignty and privacy, you know, that this Bitcoin tech is easy to use, like, and is simple to use and is a swipe and not something where you have to look up some ID and log into this thing and do this other thing. No, it should be really simple because it needs to compete with WeChat, basically, at the end of the day. Like, if if, if Bitcoin globally is going to be that, like, day-to-day uh, financial uh, way that you interact with people, it's going to have to be really freaking convenient. And, and what's given me hope is that it actually could be because it could be faster than any centralized option. Like when you watch how fast lightning works, right? You get glimmers of this, right? I mean, obviously, it, it could be a lot better for, 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 for privacy. Um, you know, we know that. But again, like people don't really care about that so much. They care about speed. Are their friends using it? Is their network effect? Is it fun? So people making this stuff have to really think about well, what did what what made like early Facebook and like what made Instagram a few years ago and what made like what makes Twitter now and you know like in its golden age I would argue and like what what, what makes WeChat right now so awesome? We really need all of that into this Bitcoin architecture and in these Bitcoin and Lightning apps is so critical, or else just not enough people are going to use it. It's like one of the problems with Signal. It's like you try to add, make like a group chat on Signal. It takes like five minutes. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right. I love Signal, but like, come on, man. Like that's, that stuff's got to be better than the centralized solutions. That's the only way we can ensure that hundreds of millions of people will, will get on board, right? No, I agree. Um, I'm optimistic. I think it's getting better. Um, and it takes time. Like we need to build out the yeah. infrastructure. That's like another big theme on Tales from the Crypt is like patience is key. In my opinion, it is. Things are a lot further than <clears throat> I ever expected them to be at this point. But also, you need to have that. You can never be complacent. You you've got to have that sense of urgency, especially when the stakes are as high as uh, we've been talking about for the last hour now. Like the yeah. stakes are the stakes are very high. Like there, and you described this in your talk on Saturday. Like there's two roads in that one chart where it's, where you describing the the uh, centralized digital money. Yes, you ends evolution inevitably in something like WeChat. Like yes. it ends in some sort of like all encompassing app that is like your social network and all your other apps in one. And it provides the government a super easy way to track everything that you do and control your behavior. You need to own up to that. That's reality. That's going to happen. Now we have an escape valve. We have a alternate reality that was provided to us by Satoshi Nakamoto and we need to do what we can with it. And you know, if, if, if we don't give enough, attention and investment and tender love and care and whatever you know it's just it's not going to work out so well for us i fear why uh why do you think people are so afraid of governments and afraid to to 
that's the notion or the belief that I have is that a lot of people think, oh, why even attempt to, to take these guys on and take take freedom back into your own hands? Well, like, governments have usually a monopoly of violence in their particular territory, which, of course, is intimidating. But I think people just need to look at history of humankind and understand that people have forced governments to do things they didn't want to do. I mean, there have been many amazing, peaceful, democratic revolutions which have brought power to the people at the expense of tyrants and kings and military juntas. There have been incredible innovations in technology, again, ranging from the printing press uh, to the telegram to uh, the Internet, which which have basically forced the hand of governments, even though they control um, the means of violence. So... Like technology can be our friend here if we use it the right way, and we have to because, as as sort of Yuval Noah Harari has pointed out, like most technology is very amenable to authoritarians. Like most technology that that seeks to collect and analyze data at scale, whether it's you know AI, big data analysis, whatever you want to call it, automation, etc. Like that's going to be used to kind of like keep the status quo where it is. But there's other kinds of technology, too, that can give us sovereign money and give us private money and give us ownership over our own data and give us a way to privately communicate with each other and give us a way to have decentralized access to the Internet and, and give us a way to have seamless, you know, anonymous payments. And, and that's the stuff that I think people that care about human rights and democracy need to be thinking about. Um, you know, people complain a lot about democratic erosion all the time, whether it's in obvious countries like Turkey or Hungary or, you know, the Philippines or whether it's here in the United States. But like at the end of the day, to properly prevent the erosion of our, you know, republic, you know, basically constitutional Republican democracies from sort of fading into authoritarianism, we need to be able to check their power. Right. And we need to be able to own our stuff and you know own our rights and property and money and data and i think bitcoin gives us a pretty exciting foundation to kind of put this idea of liberal democracy on life support at least for another few decades because it's under threat man it really is and that's another uh beautiful thought you just incited in my head too is like bitcoin allows you to act on on these like so occupy you made me think of occupy wall street sure during your last spiel like occupy like i remember i was i was a freshman in college just coming out of high school Yeah, this is the real occupy wall street exactly so like people <laughs> i remember the intensity of zuccotti park and right how how intensely that was covered and the, the emotions behind the people that were oh, very emotional were involved in Occupy Wall Street and like nothing got accomplished by Occupy no, Wall this Street. This is a way you can physically like take over your own stuff and remove it from the control of yes. elitists and bankers. So this is, right? but it yeah. takes action. Like how do we get people to act? How do we? Education. Mm -hmm. And you know, again, I mentioned this to you earlier, but you know, someone came up to me the other day and was like, well, maybe you all shouldn't be talking about this. Maybe you're blowing our cover, right? <laughs> but at some level, I disagree. I think we need to spread the word. Uh, you know, whatever. We don't need to go tell, tell, we don't have to go tell the governments, but we need to tell the people. And this is important for me because I work with all these, you know, anti corruption journalists and investigative reporters and dissidents and activists. And I want them to at least know about Bitcoin. I want them to know it's an option. I want them to know what's happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem. I want them to know about all these exciting conversations about the importance of private money. I want them to know where we are with the surveillance state. And, and I want them to be like up to speed so that they don't fall behind. You know, I want them to have the edge informationally, educationally on corporations and governments. 
I'm curious, have you observed that some of these people from more oppressed countries sort of get Bitcoin more innately? Um, or well, they get, get quicker. Yes. Yeah, so like, for example, I was sitting down with my friend Ivan Mawire, who's like a super well-known uh, democracy advocate from Zimbabwe. And I sat with him and I talked with him very briefly about, hey, there's like this decentralized digital money that your government can't like control or debase. And, you know, instead of being like, well, like, oh, I've heard it's like a scam or whatever, like most Americans or Europeans immediately say, he was like, oh, that's really cool. Tell me more. And I, you know, said a few more sentences and he was like, you know what, like, uh, I'd love to learn more because that is that has literally destroyed my country. And he, he, he actually took out from his shirt a necklace that he wore and he, he showed me that he wore a dollar from 1980 uh, from the Zimbabwean economy on his neck. And he said that all the a lot of the activists in the Zimbabwean movement wear this as a sign of what their economy used to be before their government hyperinflated it out of existence. And that to me was like really powerful. So one of the uh, one of the first guests on Tales from the Crypt was uh, was a man named Za who I used to work with at Barcel Sports, and he's from Zimbabwe. Uh-huh. And he explained to me like he lived he lived through that inf- uh, hyperinflationary uh, just the scenario. government robbing all of your stuff. That well, that like the the thing that led to that was they kicked out the farmers, they confiscated their land, um, and then well, and this helps folks ran- understand that like authoritarianism and tyranny, uh, you know, are completely connected. To, to money and to the economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we talk about this idea of separation of money and state, well, right? Zah was talking about like the black markets that developed in money. Like he mm-hmm. paid his high school tuition via, in cattle. Like that's and is cattle and gasoline turned into like the, the, the most used currencies when the, the crisis was at its height, which is crazy to think. Like you're well, paying for high school and cattle. It's, it's definitely bad for a authoritarian government to be able to control the means of production of money uh, with no checks and balances. And and this is what, you know, people make fun of the Fed a lot. And I think we need to definitely like, you know, be very careful with that and, 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 and sort of like uh, criticize what they're doing and hold them accountable. But at the end of the day, it's actually like good that the president of a Republic cannot like arbitrarily just tell the Fed what to do. Right. And you'll see this in any well, we major... We see our president trying to do that via Twitter no, right and now. We, like, and it was amazing. I, I was observing this a few months ago where, where Trump was basically like, hey, like we should we should do more quantitative easing and whatever. And it's it's very good that he can't just do whatever he wants. And, and I'll never forget this conversation I had with a Turkish friend of mine. This was maybe five, six years ago. And he was telling me that at the time, the vice president of Turkey had been caught with a money printing machine in his basement. And this isn't like we can make jokes about. Oh well, the U.S. government has basement plenty of money because the, the house got like raided by the house got <laughs> yeah. raided by like insurgents, yeah, right? We're not talking about a metaphor of like oh, like we 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 go and we print more money like federally. You're talking Whatever, about his legit he had a house. money printing machine in his house in his like basement, and he was just like printing a bunch of money. So that's the level of direct control that these authoritarian regimes have over money, and what what you need to just envision is like as he's printing that pressing that button and printing those bills he's just stealing from everybody who's saving right like this is what's happening it's literally their savings is being just slowly eaten away right that's a it's a very heavy entrenched power that bitcoin is yeah they can't do that anymore but like are they going to go down quietly no they're going to strike with a vengeance Mm -hmm. i think eric Voorhees said this the other day on, on twitter where he was like they're going to be curious at first and then they're going to push back a little bit and then they're going to be pissed, you know, and we haven't reached that level yet. I mean, only what three, four countries in the world have claimed to, you know, without enforcement, of course, but claimed to, to ban Bitcoin. Like we're not there yet. They're largely either not, not threatened. They don't care or not that interested. 
five years, I think it's be very different. So we need to like batten down the hatches and work hard as we can right now while the window of opportunity is open. Yeah, luckily the average age of a politician, at least in the United States, is like 63. So it's, it's like I, I have hope. Yeah. I and have hopefully hope that they won't be able I to mean, catch what, up. I mean, what we can hope is that young politicians, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, and my goal is to hope, con- hope to convince some of the more leftist and progressive politicians that that Bitcoin is friendly to them because it allows them to help break this monopoly that's arbitrary of elitists and sort of Davos-like Wall Street folks over money. Um, my hope is to try to sit down with them and explain this to them so that they can be more open to this because I view this as a very democratic, progressive force, right? And I think, you know, obviously someone like Andrew Yang seems to seems to be open to that. But, like, I, I don't see any reason why, why any of these young, sort of uh, very liberal, in American terms, I guess, politicians... I, I don't see any reason why they why they should be against Bitcoin. Uh, I know why they would be, unless we got involved and tried to have conversations with them. Um, I know that some... Why would they be? Why would they be? Uh, because I feel like if we don't get out there and have meaningful conversations about what Bitcoin is and what it represents, it can be easily misconstrued as some like very right-wing libertarian you know, thing with like people who have tinfoil hats and want to end the Fed. You know, like I think... The Ron Paul movement, you know, is is pretty not helpful for like most people when when we're trying to convince folks about like like how it's money not the most convincing argument. He's not very convincing for many different reasons, including foreign policy. And I, I think there's a strain of thinking in in the Bitcoin land, which is unfortunate. And and there there's some high profile folks out there who who say and think this way, but. I mean, you've got Bitcoin promoters out there who are like unabashed supporters of Putin, for example. And I just think this needs to end. Like, you don't have to think anything about the U.S. government. You need to separate that in your mind from understanding that Putin is a brutal dictator who murders journalists and kills anyone who disagrees with them. And we have copious evidence of this. And he's murdered so many people in Chechnya and Syria and in Ukraine. And this is a guy who's just totally bent on destruction. And if you believe in Bitcoin, you cannot support Putin. I don't think you can do that with a moral conscience. And yet there's like quite a few people that I've met. Maybe maybe not quite a few, but certainly a few high-profile ones in the Bitcoin space who seem to be like chummy with, with Putin. Really? Not cool. See, no, it's not cool at all. Like, Putin's a fucking scumbag. He's a yeah. statist. He's a dictator basically at this i'm not point. gonna name names but think about it as you follow folks on twitter and as you as you digest their podcasts and just just this is a red flag i mean this means that they aren't pro-freedom in the end they might be anti-american but they're not pro-freedom these are two different concepts right no, no that's like that's the uh like these people, weird, when, I, when I push these people, they're basically like, the reason we like Bitcoin is because it'll end the dominance of the dollar in the world. I'm like, okay, to what end? Like, see, so that the Chinese or, or Russians take exactly. over? Exactly. That's the scary, like, gray area where it's like, I'm not anti-American. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, obviously I'm not anti-American. I fucking love America. I live in America. I will mm-hmm. fight for America till the day I die. Right. I just think that the world would be more efficient, the economy would be fairer. Yeah, but these are folks who like, hang out in America, enjoy American liberties, and then they go trash America, you know, and that's something that, like, just needs to be addressed. Yeah. I think you need to be, like, a responsible American citizen and understand that our government is causing great havoc in the world in certain areas, and we need to, like, try and push our, push our politicians and business leaders to not do those things, and as Americans, we should use our rights and liberties to, like, be in solidarity and help folks abroad and promote the Bitcoin network and work on Bitcoin because a lot of folks 
in the world, you know, can't openly do that in the same way, right? So let's like use our liberties, but let, let's be very clear that like if you if you are interested in the Bitcoin project and in financial privacy and in financial sovereignty, you, you are you know welcome to the anti-authoritarian club. Let's put it that way, Fact. which means that you need to really be careful about like folks who are warm or favorable to whether it's the Russian authoritarians or the Iranian authoritarians or the Chinese authoritarians. Like any authoritarian is bad. And you know, this is something that Christopher Hitchens basically coined uh, was this idea of like principled anti-totalitarianism. Doesn't matter what religion, what geographic location, what language, anyone who's like a hardcore dictator, it doesn't matter what politicians they support doesn't or matter where they you, fall on American foreign policy. You should be against them 100%. A hundred, 100,000%. Like, so this drives me nuts with the code pink Putin, people. Putin has, Putin has poisoned journalists with like, like the, nuclear... The, the, the worst um, excess of this is code pink, right? So code mm-hmm. pink uh, picks and chooses. So they're like against properly, rightly, uh, like let's say America's role in Yemen... But they're like fighting and they're like against any sort of positive, potentially, like anything we could do to help Venezuelans. Like, like they're, they're taking over, like basically, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're trying to basically say that like any sort of attempt to support Venezuelan opposition is somehow like American imperialism. And there's nothing more arrogant than that. Like these people are fighting their own battle for freedom. They don't need like Code Pink to tell them that they don't deserve it. You know, there's these mm-hmm. literal YouTube videos you can watch of interviews on the street in DC of Venezuelans getting yelled at by these like white American gringos, right? Like you and me, who are basically standing there being like, no, like, you know, we should continue, continue to support Maduro, the socialist. Like, you know, like just, you know, your, your guy's just a crony for Trump or whatever. This is just couldn't be further from the truth. Right. So this is really, really frustrating. So I think like if you're into Bitcoin and you're into like financial privacy and freedom, be very careful like that that means you should be against all dictators they're all bad being uh ideologically uh, ideologically consistent uh is important try i mean it's it's very difficult to do but like i'm certainly not perfect but you got to try you know no and it goes back to what i was saying earlier about like my my iranian friends like when i think of like Iran. Yeah. I think of them. I think of those individuals. When well, you think of Russia, Pal- what about the Palestinians? When I think of Russia, I think about my boss Dmitri, who is a Russian, mm-hmm. and he talks about how terrible it was living under the Soviet Russia, and like that's who you think. Like, and that's what I hate so much is that politicians in general, mm-hmm. politician, any politician, any country, whether despotic or free like America. Like I just think they never have. Uh, they're. Like I, I think politician as a mechanism is outdated for today's society, um, and it's just a naturally centralizing force that that role of politician. Well, at the end of the day, like Bitcoin is going to be this tool which is going to remove the power for these governments to make arbitrary decisions. I mean, again, just think about the Palestinians. Like, uh, they're very restricted in what they can do. Uh, their banking and finance movements are very controlled, right? This is going to be a tool for them, too. So I think anyone using Bitcoin needs to understand that anyone being repressed by anybody is going to be benefited by the spread of this network, just like the open Internet. Yeah. And I think it it just what we need now at this point is more people to have the courage to step up and, and join the fray. Right. And 
hey, I think that's why educate, I, build, well, do whatever you can. Alex, I want to, I want to ego stroke you right now. Like I think, like, I I do think like th- that's why I like. Thanks, Marty. That's why I like your pieces that you put out in time and your presentation from Saturday because uh-huh. it's legit. Like I can send that to my mother-in-law, to my sister-in-law. Like this is why Bitcoin's important, and that's something that they they emotionally connect with is I think the framing that you have for Bitcoin's freedom enabling yeah. perspective and is look, I, I think Bitcoin as it is today, you know, like the, the, the token, the protocol is, is the key thing, but it's, it's, it's actually more of an idea, right. That we can all rally behind, um, which, which goes beyond the value of it today in us dollars. It, it, it that's important for the network security and it's important because we need to like on ramp more people and have more adoption and you know have it be a more safe and stable ecosystem but at the end of the day it's this idea that people can be financially sovereign and that pe- people can be hopefully eventually financially private and that we can have like a really powerful tool uh, against the orwellian surveillance state how exciting is it being a part of it? Like this, it's invigorating waking up every day, writing about this stuff, like being at the fore. Like you said, during the Manhattan Project, that was the smartest minds in the world, like picked by the U.S. government. Uh-huh. Bitcoin is just naturally coalescing. Yeah, people just coming together. Right? It's really exciting. And, and I, I try to share it with as many people as possible. And I'm sure just like you, I come off as annoying or whatever. <laughs> uh, but I hope folks get it. And I know that it took, look, it took me a long time. It took me many, many months to understand probably seven or eight months before I started to really start to click. And well, I was have big- to give a shout out to Andreas Antonopoulos because mm-hmm. he really helped me understand all this. If you just listen to enough of his talks and videos, you'll start to really get this. What right? was your biggest hurdle initially? Well, the, the, the biggest hurdle is that at the beginning, there's no good educational materials and it's all about blockchain and what is a blockchain. And you have to work through all this stuff. And for like a person who's, you know, used to doing kind of like Wikipedia style, just research. It's very confusing. There aren't many great educational materials. A lot of the more technical materials are too confusing for the average person. Um, and a lot of the like for the average person stuff is not Bitcoin specific and, and sends you down like a rabbit hole of something else, you know? So I will say like, at least right now, it seems to take a lot of commitment and interest to, to actually start to grasp Bitcoin uh, in, in that deep way. Uh, and I'm hope, hoping that we can create better and better and better educational materials so that that time commitment can, can be decreased so that within several weeks or days or whatever, folks can start to really understand this because that's, that's going to be key. No, I, I completely agree. That's why I think things like the Open Money Project, like working on the UX, even not even the UX of using it, the UX of explaining it. And that's like a problem I've been trying to solve with like Marty's Bent and this podcast is how do you distill this message? And it's not easy, but I think we are getting better at it uh, as a quote-unquote community. Um, and I think for reasons that you just described, uh, being more specific, not talking about blockchain, talking about Bitcoin. Yeah, what, let's Bitcoin. talk about Bitcoin. Yeah. You want to talk about other stuff? Great. We can like separate that out. But this deserves its own conversation. And I believe for the reasons we've laid out over the last uh, hour and a half plus, uh, that, that this is worthy of your time. And that even if you don't end up working on this project, that at least learning about Bitcoin, I think will help you understand a little bit more about how politics and economics works, about how monetary policy works, uh, about hopefully how 
systems and networks change and maybe gives you a little bit of optimism. I mean, it really does give me a little bit of optimism that there's something that we can do collectively, peacefully as humans to help challenge surveillance and authoritarianism. It, it does give me that, right? No, and it gives, it gives me that too. Now going back to what we were touching on earlier, like... Like is like you were we were you were asking like worst case scenario like how can this turn into like a bad future like I don't think it can because coming to understand Bitcoin means that you you have more personal responsibility you understand how your life is affected by these systems more innately and and you are able to make better decisions yeah. off of that so if you have a collective understanding about Bitcoin mm-hmm. you have a collective basically you have a you have a population that is able to make better decisions about how their life is affected right i mean i think it's i, I wouldn't go that far i think it's going to be really difficult to get it right and there's a lot of ways we could screw it up i mean primarily by ignoring the whole thing um but also by not doing the right things with regard to fungibility and privacy uh and usability there's a lot of ways we could go wrong but it could only be better if more and more people get involved and, and i hope that's what folks do so i hope anyone who's interested in the human rights uh, aspects of this uh, gets in touch and we can jam and uh, hopefully make something happen. Well, if any of you freaks are listening to this, you want to make something happen, don't be shy. Don't be shy. DM, email. Come at me. Come at them. Um, I'm ready. You have to go to the Coin Center dinner tonight. I'm going to go to the gala and support Coin Center because they do awesome work. And even in open societies like America, we need nonprofits to protect our rights and prevent regulation of free speech and private uh, property. Well, don't tell Beauty on that. He, he won't be too pumped about that. But no, it's um, Alex, thank you so much for coming through, man. Real pleasure. Thanks for having me on, dude. Dude, not even for coming through. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, My pleasure. And again, I, like when we were talking a lot about education, I think the pieces that you put out uh, just from a from an educational perspective are great for people trying to get introduced to Bitcoin. You really drive home why it's important, especially your talk last Saturday and your timepiece. Like really get to the core of why this shit is important. Well, I appreciate that and I hope more people can join and get involved and keep spreading the word because most folks in the development world, the humanitarian world, the human rights world haven't really thought about this at all. There's a lot of work to do. So I think everybody can play a little bit of a part. I do as well. So start annoying everybody to start thinking about this. Alex, um, final, final here. Uh Um, Final word of wisdom, parting note for the freaks. Obviously get in touch with you. Anything that you got coming out in the future that we should be paying attention to? Um, Last spiel. Yeah, sure. I'll I'll, I'll do something fairly selfish uh, because I have the opportunity. I run a conference called the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is coming up at the end of the month. Got a lot of awesome Bitcoiners coming, like like Jimmy Song and Elena from Casa, uh, Jerry Brito from Coin Center. Um, but but the real uh, amazing part of the event is that we have all these activists and dissidents coming from tough political environments all around the world to tell their story. And the program is all live streamed, so you all can watch it for free at oslofreedomforum.com on May 27, 28, 29. I guarantee you'll learn something. You'll be challenged. You'll be provoked. You'll be triggered. Um, You'll be enraged. You'll be inspired. But come check out our content. And hopefully you can come to one of our events. You know, we're starting to work in some of this Bitcoin and crypto uh, programming and thematics into our human rights programming. And we have upcoming events later in the year in places like New York and 
in Taiwan and Mexico City um, and, and even in, in, in Johannesburg. Um, but I, I hope I hope it's interesting for you all. So OsloFreedomForum.com, check it out, and, and you might find it exciting and hopefully interesting. That'll be happening the week after Memorial Day, a day that uh, serves to remember the people that fought for your freedom. So very, very precious. That's right. Pay attention to the ones who are fighting for freedom around the world today. (laughs) Exactly. That's a perfect note to end it on. Peace and love, freaks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Alex.